Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Battle of the Wilderness in 1864 brought the violence of the Civil War to a new level. In dense forest terrain where fire joined the other hazards of warfare, the war's two most famous generals, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, faced each other on the battlefield for the first time, even if it was a battlefield where they could not see each other, or indeed see much of their own armies in the forest. How they fared and how their soldiers endured is the story told by John Reeves in A Fire in the Wilderness, the first battle between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. He joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, speaking for ECU or anybody else, just myself. My guests will do the same. But back for the first time in a long time in the Brewster Building, even though it's still the season of COVID here in September 2021, and even though the Brewster Building itself is the suspicious location of an unusually high number of uh, cancer cases, pancreatic cancer among faculty in the last 10 years, so much that they are doing an investigation in the building to make sure that's not what's causing it. Uh, one can only hope, but uh, I've been here 17 years. It's, it's too late to change now. Uh, hopefully there's nothing nothing wrong with the building itself. Uh, but here we are, back at World Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in Office A320 of the A-Wing of the Brewster Building. Uh, classes are still in session, uh, face-to-face here at ECU. Uh, in spite of the pandemic, I've seen several of my students already uh, have to quarantine themselves. Some have tested positive, others have been exposed, and 
they're trying to keep away from others. Hopefully we'll keep it down and be able to stay in class. We'll just have to see. Uh, today is the week of Labor Day, uh, September 2021. Labor Day is, if you're on a Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday teaching schedule, a bogus holiday because it's always on a Monday and every week. Uh, Monday and Wednesday are prep days, and Tuesday and Thursday are teaching days. And if you get Monday off, but you have to teach Tuesday, Monday is still a prep day, even if uh, the mail's not being delivered or the banks are closed. So it's not really a holiday. But it was this year because uh, our two daughters uh, came back to Greenville and as a birthday present for my wife, uh, bought us a weekend at the beach. The four of us uh, stayed at the uh, tiny condo on the inner banks. Uh, the beaches there are very nice. You've heard of the outer banks, but the inner banks are, are great too. And we were at Atlantic Beach, not far from Fort Macon. I could actually see the smoke rising from a cannon demonstration uh, at Fort Macon on Sunday. And uh, it was just a, a delight to uh, to have the family together. Uh, it was great to be in the sun and salt water that seems to have cured my poison ivy case that I was moaning about last week. Uh, if I'm looking for things to moan about, of course, there, there's always football, but uh, ECU uh, women's football, that is the soccer team, has won three in a row, two consecutive shutouts. They're doing great. Men's football, not so much, so we won't talk about them. Today is also, uh, as September 8th, 2021, uh, I was teaching uh, yesterday about in, in a military history class about uh, Lovewell's fight, uh, which took place in, in uh, Maine in 1725 between Massachusetts militia and Abenaki Indians. You, if you're like me, had never heard of Lovewell's fight. Uh, I came across a book by just looking on the library shelves randomly and learned about it for the first time discovered it was at one time famous. Everybody knew about it. Uh, Hawthorne wrote about it. Uh, Longfellow wrote about it. Uh, Thoreau wrote about it. And, and they just called it Lovewell's Fight, and everybody knew this famous skirmish. But in the 21st century, even PhDs from, say, Harvard University, if you can imagine that, have never heard of Lovewell's Fight. I bring this up because today is the day that the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond was taken off its pedestal and removed. And just as Lovewell's fight went from being a household word that everybody knew about to something that nobody knows anything about anymore, so it is that Robert E. Lee's stature has changed in the public mind from uh, a great national hero, at least among white Americans, to uh, a much more complex figure uh, who represents a movement that many people are no longer uh, nearly as willing to celebrate as they were in 1890 when that statue went up. So the wheel keeps turning. Uh, the idea that this is anything new, that we change what we remember or, or forget about history is certainly uh, certainly not new. It continues to evolve. And uh, when I go into class tomorrow, we'll be talking about the removal of the statue and how that represents another turning of this wheel. And people are, of course, free to oppose it uh, as much as they are to support it, but it's it's not as if this is something that has never happened before. Uh, and and uh, it's worth seeing it in that historical context. 
You can see other things in historical context, of course, by listening to this show. We've got lots of good shows coming up. Next week, we'll be talking about Antietam's Bloody Turning Point. That's The Cornfield, a book by David Welker. On the 22nd of September, we will return, in my mind, to the beach for Gil Hahn's work, Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the Civil War. And we'll meet with John David Smith on the 29th. He's a co-editor of an essay collection called The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. And since we're getting up on October, I'll give you a quick rundown there. Uh, Christopher C. Moore will be talking about J. William Jones, Apostle of the Lost Cause, uh, subtitle Baptists and the Development of Confederate Memory. On the 13th of October, no live show. We'll be traveling with the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, this hallowed ground trip. The trip is sold out, I'm happy to say. Uh, If you didn't get aboard, uh, come join us in the spring. On the 20th, Ronald White's new book on the private Lincoln will be our topic. Looking forward to that. And we'll finish out the month uh, with David Maury returning to the show in his book on Cincinnati in the Civil War, the Union's Queen City. So lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can find out who's there, who's next on the show. Mark Gaffney keeps it up to date, posts the book images there. If you buy your books through that website, he gets a penny or two. It's worth your while to do that. And you can also donate to the Civil War Talk Radio book and cigar fund, although I've never actually purchased a cigar with it. I don't smoke them. Uh, But I could. I could do anything with the money. Don't uh, declare it as a donation on your taxes. It's just a gift. Uh, Speaking of uh, things you can do uh, with with money, I can do things with sponsors' money. And tonight's show, uh, On the Battle of the Wilderness uh, by John Reeves, A Fire in the Wilderness is the title. Tonight's show is sponsored by Civil War Trails. Civil War Trails is the world's largest open-air museum. It offers 1,350 sites across six states. So if you're inspired by what you hear tonight, the Civil War Trails on to Richmond brochure will allow you to follow in the footsteps of the 1864 Overland Campaign from Germana Ford and the Wilderness to Richmond and Petersburg. You can request a copy today at civilwartrails.org. That's all one word, civilwartrails.org. So follow Civil War Trails, create some history of your own. And I'll add to that written word that I've just shared with you that uh, the Battle of the Wilderness really is a great one for Civil War Trails. It's not like Antietam or the Wilderness, I'm sorry, Antietam or or Manassas, First Manassas. You can see the whole battlefield practically from one point. You can't do that in the Wilderness, as we'll talk in, in just a moment. You really have to travel around. And the Civil War Trails markers are informative, they're well placed, the brochures are handy. I really cannot recommend Civil War Trails enough. Uh, And it is great, uh, as I said, for following the battle in the wilderness, which is the subject of the book A Fire in the Wilderness, the first battle between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, by our guest tonight, John Reeves. John, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Good, John. Welcome back to the show. It's good to hear from you again. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, last time you were on, we talked about uh, Robert E. Lee's uh, treason mm-hmm. indictment that you wrote a fascinating book about. And uh, today, Robert E. Lee's statue is removed from uh, the 
the city of Richmond. I'm curious, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, one of the one of my first impressions was I, I it's really hard to believe that it happened. Um, yeah, when I first it? started writing that book in 2015, uh, back in 2015, I would have never imagined in a million years that um, that statue would eventually be removed. But so much has happened over the last several years, and it was a gradual progression. And and uh, some of the images I've been I've been watching over the course of the day has been just remarkable to see it uh, come down. And then, of course, now it's in pieces. He's been taken off Traveler and um, getting ready to send it to a, um, I think, a women's prison it's going to be stored at, at least temporarily. Wow. It is, as you say, hard to imagine this uh, five or ten years ago that this would happen. And I've been collecting for my class tomorrow pictures of the cheering crowds of 1890 uh, all gathered around for the celebration when it was put up and then there were cheering crowds today uh, cheering as it came down Uh, probably not the same people there no one alive today from (laughs) 1890 but different as different as as could be Uh, it is certainly stunning how how the world turns isn't it yeah yeah so let's talk about the uh, uh, the Battle of the Wilderness. Um, let me start with the obvious question. We've got Gordon Ray's, I don't know, is it five, six books, wonderful books on the Overland Campaign. We've got Noah mm-hmm. Trudeau's book. Uh, go back to Bruce Catton writing about it. Why uh, add another book on the Battle of the Wilderness? Yeah, no, and that's a that's a very good question. And I would say it's it's for this reason that I didn't set out to write another military history book. So mm-hmm. I think that if you want just a kind of minute-by-minute uh, minute account of the various regiments, then Gordon Ray's book is still, is still the one. But mm-hmm. this book is really about the costs of the battle and about the, tr- the national trauma involved in this battle and, uh, and the human dimension as well. So I really wanted to write a book about medicine, about how we commemorate fallen soldiers. And I also wanted to kind of tell it um, from the perspective of just an ordinary substitute from upstate New York. So it's not a, it's not a, it's not a minute-by-minute military narrative. Rather, it's a, a story, and I hope it's a, an American story about a, a truly horrific battle that, you know, oftentimes doesn't get remembered as much as, say, Gettysburg does or Antietam, but um, on some levels, the wilderness was more horrific than any of the other Civil War battles. It, it truly was, was terrible and um, a lot of suffering in those woods. The, the, uh, so as I was reading this book, I, uh, one question that came to me fairly early on was uh, to try to figure out who it was, who you had in mind as an audience. That is, right. um, you know, it, it People listening to this show know most of them. I'm, I'm guessing the outline of the Battle of the Wilderness. I'm generally familiar with it. I wouldn't say I, I mm-hmm. learned a ton of new things in that, and that wasn't your intent, as you just said, uh, to teach us about who mm-hmm. who shot who at what time. Uh, but so, who who were you aiming? Who did you have in mind as you wrote this? As yeah, an audience, so, you know. As as any um, commercial minded author would say, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but but no to, to to give you a better answer than that, I think that 
I was really aiming for the general reader. So maybe someone who doesn't know much about the wilderness, but is interested in history and is interested in, you know, that, that conflict and, and what it meant and what it costs. And maybe, maybe, you know, thinking about things that often aren't covered in the traditional military histories. For example, I really wanted to treat that that odyssey from being wounded and then being taken to the, the hospitals in Fredericksburg and then on up to the general hospitals in Washington, D.C. So I wanted to cover something like that and then the founding of Arlington and, and, and some of these topics that often aren't included in, you know, as I said, the, the, the more orthodox uh, narratives. So, so that was my aim. I, I, I was writing for, for a general reader, and um, I hoped that the um, Civil War um, readership was also going to be interested as well, because they always have additional insights and, and might kind of um, enjoy looking at it from a different perspective than, than, than usual. But yeah, so I think it was much more for a general audience than sort of the um, Civil War expert. Well, and that's a that's a tough thing to do to to hit right in between where where it, it's quite easy I, I imagine to write for a general audience where you're telling people stuff uh, that you assume they don't know, and then mm-hmm. if I'm reading it or our listeners tonight are reading it, they're going, yeah, I already know what a mini ball is. You don't have to tell me this. You don't have right. to tell me that. Um, and and I think you threaded that needle here. I think I I found myself turning the pages and enjoying this. Um, and while while you you gracefully touched over stuff that uh, that most of us already know, the, there are some really unique aspects to this book uh, that do tell it differently. I want to ask you about those in particular. Uh, so we'll take a short break and come back, talk more with our guest tonight, John Reeves, author of A Fire in the Wilderness: The First Battle Between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Reeves, author of A Fire in the Wilderness, the first battle between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. So, John, let me ask you about the research for this book. Where where did you sure. find the sources to, to put this together? Yeah, so, you know, I started by reading... Um, a, there's a lot of published memoirs um, by the soldiers. So I started there um, for reading both the Union and the um, Confederate uh, memoirs and personal accounts and, and those sorts of things. And then eventually, as I started to kind of see where I wanted to go with it, I um, started hitting some of the archives and went to the National Archives to find the material on uh, Private William Reeves, who is a prominent character. I was able to find his medical information and his and, and his and his military file as well. Although, unfortunately for Reeves, I wasn't able to find any uh, personal letters uh, with family. But I got the medical file and the military file with him, and then I went um, and I and I. A part of the story was to uh, look at Governor Warren. So I went up to Albany um, and looked at his papers at the New York State Li- at the New York State Library there. And um, and then of course I live in Washington D.C., so I have access to the Library of Congress. So I looked at General Wadsworth's papers, and um, and of course for Grant and Lee, I could get most of their papers um, are available online. And um, so I kind of, you know, I started with the memoirs and then I kind of went to the archives and and built out my research that way. But, you know, I tried to, even though I used a lot of published memoirs, um, and of course, the I used a lot of the Civil War records of the time, I tried to make it as, as contemporary as possible, at least as far as, you know, the views of participants and not get too far into secondary works because I wanted to kind of, I wanted to kind of have that fresh perspective of the period. Um, and because I think particularly with Lee and Grant, the further removed you get from the events, the more of the myth enters into the assessment and it makes it kind of harder to separate um, what has built up over time and, and, and what was real, you know. It, it definitely does that, and you, you discussed that specifically with Lee uh, in particular. With um, But you mentioned William Reeves, who's private yes. in 76th New York, and uh, he is really a major character in the book. He gets a, a, a chapter where we are introduced to him, and we follow him through. Um, and his story, th- this is what really struck me about the book, that while Rather than tell us the story of the wilderness that we've all heard before, you tell us about this individual who is a substitute. Uh, He's not drafted, but he goes in as a substitute. We don't know much about uh, such people. We don't hear about them typically. And then uh, he is – the amount of fighting he does is almost zero. He gets wounded practically by the first bullet of the battle. Mm -hmm. And then, as as you said in the first segment, we follow his journey – back to the uh, brigade and then division aid stations and eventually to the core hospital and finally back behind the lines and so on. 
And and it's a way of telling a story many of us, again, have heard before about how the Union organized its military hospitals, but not in this first-person way where, where we see him. Did you – Reeves is not a relative of yours, according to the book. Right, uh, right. No, he isn't. Did, how did yeah, you so come I'll across – why do why'd you pick this guy? Yeah, no, and that's a really great question. And I'll tell you um, – so you know how – when you write a book, there's, there's a lot of stuff that sort of just, you, you go with things that interest you. So for mm-hmm. me personally, I had read um, Margaret Leach's great book, Reveille in Washington, and I was sure. really struck by how painful it must have been in those wagons going over bad roads when you were injured. So imagine having a broken jaw or a broken leg or a bullet wound or whatever, and you're in a wagon and you're jostling up and down. And it was a 30-hour journey from the wilderness to Fredericksburg. And then you're, and then you're in some you know, probably very unclean makeshift hospital in Fredericksburg for a couple of days. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that story alive, you know, of that, that suffering and what that was like to be a wounded soldier. And so I came across Reeves because I was trying to find, well, is there someone I could tell this story through their perspective? And um, I came across his medical file, but, but even more interesting, I thought, was that he was the he was the fourth burial at Arlington National Cemetery, which saw its first burials the day after uh, the bloody the Battle of the Bloody Angle at Spotsylvania Courthouse. And I just thought that that was an interesting juxtaposition, and I thought that it was an interesting story to have someone who was wounded in the wilderness, went all the way up to D.C., then sadly passed away, and then is buried at Arlington. And to top it all off. They're they're sort of honoring our national cemetery, an estate that used to belong to the enemy that we were fighting uh, in the woods during this campaign. So, you know, because Arlington, of course, was Robert E. Lee's former estate. So I just felt that all that I thought that that was just a nice narrative um, that would maybe pull this work as a thread through the book, you know. So that's how that came about. It, it is interesting how sometimes it's just fortuitous. You come across things and they just practically tell themselves, and you think, i got to use this. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And now, one of the challenges in writing about this soldier, uh, you know, very early on, he takes a bullet uh, in the face, in one cheek and out the other, breaks right. his jaw. Um, some writers about the Civil War. Not a lot, fortunately, but some of them fall into what producing what I would call casualty porn, where they right. they tell you about the sprays of blood and the shattered limbs, and they they you know tell tell you the reader we're just doing this to make sure we all hate war and are horrified by it. But you get the feeling sometimes you know, you're telling us too much. Um, you're secretly somehow relishing this in an un savory way uh, I don't think that happens here uh, I want to be clear but I wonder if, if you were if, if you had to work to avoid that how, how much detail how much gore can you put in how much can you leave out and still tell the story honestly yeah and that's such a great point and I'll tell you you know, you know what the irony of this is 
I am the last guy. I don't like that myself. I mean, I'm sort of squeamish about uh, about um, thinking about some of these gruesome operations. So I'm not that guy who enjoys that. But I also feel that war is 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 destructive and it's horrible. And what people had to go through, we shouldn't look away either. You know what I mean? So I really tried to balance that as best I could. And so just a little secret of how I, how I solved this problem was to be as clinical as I could. So mm-hmm. I consulted with a doctor. My brother-in-law is a doctor. And I got the medical file, and we went over it in a clinical way. So rather than being like, you know, and then that happened in a sensational way, we were kind of going through line by line, this is what they said happened. What does that mean? What it would it have felt like for Reese? You know what I mean? Trying to get at it mm-hmm. as real as possible, but without making people be turned off. Because, you know, I also want people to read the book. And I know there's a lot of people who wouldn't want, you know, endless um, accounts of gruesome injuries. Because, you know what I mean? I think at a certain point it becomes counterproductive. But, um, but in this case, I felt like taking a clinical approach to the injury would be a way to tell the story without being too, you know, gruesome. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it, it works. I mean, you have a, a drawing uh, of, of a medical drawing that is a medical sketch yeah. of what a wound like that would look like. That uh, it, it's you know very clinical and it it gets the point across of horrifying the the reader appropriately without uh, without being sensationalistic about it. The now we, we've already I guess spoiled the uh, the ending for the reader. Uh, so <laughs> if you don't want to hear it again, listeners, just skip 10 seconds ahead. Uh, but uh, Reeves seems like he's going to recover from his wound, uh, but he doesn't. Uh, was that part of the, the story arc from the beginning that you knew this guy was not going to make it? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I did. I did. I knew he was buried in... Um, but I knew he was buried in Arlington, and so, of course, he didn't make it. But what I didn't know, because I'm not a, a doctor, I'm not a medical doctor, I didn't realize that, you know, his wound nowadays would be something that he would easily recover from. Do you know what I mean? That it didn't hit an artery straight away, and it was something that, you know, you'd clean up, you would you would um, take an x-ray, someone would go in and... and, and uh, remove all of the bone fragments, and and he would probably have been fine eventually. Um, but the conditions back then were different, you know, and so he had what was called a secondary hemorrhage um, after ten days or so. And with you know, so there was people people died often of infections several days after uh, surgery. So Reeves did have surgery, but it was just to remove the bone fragments. So it wasn't a particularly uh, terrible surgery, but. Um, Nevertheless, though, but they didn't get all of the fragments, so he probably had one nick and artery, um, and he had the secondary hemorrhage. But but that was the nature of uh, surgery but, and medicine back then is, you know, the initial surgery may or may not <laughs> be, may or may not have been successful, right? And, and time, only time could tell. And um, I, my understanding from looking at some of the records is that a secondary hemorrhage for his sort of injury was sort of a crapshoot, like... It didn't always happen, but sometimes it did. So you know, he probably they 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 probably wouldn't have known 
Right. right? But right. For, for me, I assumed, you know, when you look at the records, you, you would have thought he'd be fine, you know? Um, yeah. but, and then it was unfortunate. He had just arrived in D.C. and he had the secondary hemorrhage. And it happened so quickly, they had to go in and try to, you know, tie up the artery without any anesthesia, but it was too late and he passed. It, it's, uh, it, it certainly does humanize to focus on this, this individual casualty. Uh, listeners, don't get the wrong idea. The book's not all about uh, 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 Private Reeves, although he's an important character. You do tell the, the big picture as well. You mentioned uh, Governor Warren, Fifth Corps commander. Uh, and the book starts, as the battle starts, with his attack uh, as, as Grant's army is, or Meade's army actually, is marching south through the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Lee sends uh, Ewell to to probe and attack and, and catch it before the army can get through that difficult patch of terrain. And then Warren's ordered to attack. And then you've just got back and forth uh, one attack after another. One thing that, that I found very striking was that the the attacks never quite work. Uh, yeah. that it, it sometimes it seems like it's going to break through. You know, Ewell catches well, the Fifth Corps catches Ewell. Then uh, uh, the, you know, AP Hill shows up, and now the Union is, is on the back foot. And then Hancock comes, and now the Confederates are Hills in trouble. And then Longstreet shows up. Now the Union is reeling, and it's just back and forth. Uh, was there an, any chance for a real decisive victory either way? Do you think? Well, you know, such a such a great point, and I think, um, yeah, it, it, it was such it was difficult it was difficult conditions number one, but also you know uh-huh. from a command perspective for Grant, the the Army of the Potomac was relatively new to him, you know, so he didn't have he wasn't as familiar with his corps commanders as Lee was with his. Um, but yes, I think that there were two two moments, um, and some would maybe say three, where things could have, you know, things could have really had a, a massive result. The first is on the morning of May sixth, when Hancock is able to overwhelm uh, AP Hill's corps, and 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 Longstreet isn't quite up yet. So you have that moment where it looks like Lee, for the first time <laughs> um, in the Civil War, could see his old army destroyed. Um, but Longstreet arrives just in the nick of time, almost like a Hollywood movie. He, he comes marching down the orange plank road, you know, just as it looks like it's uh, curtains for the Confederates. Um, and then later that morning, um, Longstreet goes around Hancock's left, um, and in, as he, as they joked uh, later, um, Longstreet rolled him up like a wet blanket, you know. And um, but Hancock, to my mind, had wisely the day before when he arrived at the intersection, had prepared uh, breastworks and had prepared a defensive position that he could retreat back to um, and, and, and secure his line. Um, it showed a lot of foresight. And, you know, in some ways, this isn't, this isn't a major theme in the book, but I, I came mm-hmm. away thinking that in some ways Hancock was the, perhaps arguably the best performing commander uh, in the wilderness over the course of the two days. Um, but then, and then finally, um, in a, so finally things settled down um, on the Orange Plank Road, Brock Road intersection. But then later that night on the second day, May 6th, 
um, Grant's right was turned uh, by Gordon, and um, he eventually was able to secure that. But you know, it, it was it, it was a it was a long day of uh, you know three pretty big events um, that could have changed everything, basically. And you know, a lot of some Confederates, some Confederate generals believed that the turning of Hancock, the turning of his left um, at midday on May 6th could have eventually swept uh, Grant and pushed him back over the Rapidan River, except for one event, and that was Longstreet gets shot um, on the Orange Plank Road and throwing the sort of leadership of that movement into chaos. And then Lee takes over, and actually, to Lee's credit, felt that he had to reorganize his entire uh, his entire group on the on the plank road, and that took a couple hours. And Hancock was able to strengthen his defenses even more. And then Lee, you know, just did a very straightforward assault uh, on the intersection, which proved to be kind of a mistake, and, and he was criticized by some of his uh, officers for, for that, and, you know, a, an attack that was maybe just a little too uncreative, and it didn't quite work. So, yeah, so, there, as you said, there were lots of reversals, the, nobody quite being able to press their advantage, but um, particularly on the second day, it was very eventful, and, and, and you know, I, I, I sort of make the point in the book that in in some respects, the Battle of the Wilderness was the Confederates' last chance, right? That they had this, they were, they still had the capability of perhaps pushing Grant across the Rapidan River again and ending the spring campaign. But when it failed and they had taken on a lot of casualties and there, and Grant keeps moving south, it, you know, it looked less and less likely that they were going to be able to do anything, at least from an offensive perspective. And it just, they hoped for being able to, uh, you know, maybe change the political calculus, but they certainly weren't going to be able to destroy Grant's army as, as they get pushed back and back towards Richmond. No, you don't, you don't see that, that kind of open field attack happening again in the history of the Army of Northern Virginia, certainly not on the yeah. scale that you see it in the wilderness. So you've got, um, as you say, Hancock performs uh, extremely well. He has the foresight to prepare a defensive position. Uh, you also talk about some other generals who have mixed records uh, that day, Warren, Wadsworth, others, and then some who don't do well at all, like uh, Burnside is quite uh, dilatory. Mm. But... There's lots more to talk about. Let's take another short break. We'll come back and mm-hmm. resume our discussion of the book, A Fire in the Wilderness, the first battle between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. It's written by our guest tonight, John Reeves. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. 
Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Reeves, author of A Fire in the Wilderness, the first battle between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. Uh, John, you mentioned earlier how when we get further away from the contemporary sources, we get more in the realm of legend and and stories that are repeated. And one of the most repeated stories of the Battle of the Wilderness is the the story of Lee to the rear. Uh, Did that really happen as, as we read about it so often? The way I write about it and the way I think about it is that... It show, it's often used as part of the Lee myth, right? That he's almost like this um, medieval knight leading his men into battle. And um, one of the, some of the paintings of him, he almost looks like a New Testament character with his, you know, his, his white hair and he's on his horse and he's about to uh, lead his troops across the wither tops field. Um, but, in, but I actually make the point that, in fact, instead of being a saint-like or a, a myth-like character, it showed Lee to be very human. And that was, you know, he saw that, <laughs> he saw that his army was about to be destroyed, and he knew that they had to make a last stand, and that when he saw uh, the Texas Brigade come, he was just so filled with emotion um, that he wanted to lead them forward. And of course, you know, the, the, <laughs> the soldiers were grabbed the the reins and and pushed him to the rear and said, no, generally, you know, we need you. You know, that wasn't the place for um, the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia to be going across a field leading a brigade um, going into a hail of of gunfire. So, um, but but it shows that he was very human, very impulsive. Some people said that he was, that he had tears in his eyes. He was so emotional at the time. But yeah, that really did happen. And um, Longstreet writes in his memoir um, that uh, General Lee was off his balance, you know. Um, and uh, I just think it's a, it's a fascinating story. It just um, really illustrates kind of, uh, you know, what would, you know, there's just the chaos in those woods at that time. One, one last anecdote about that, which I kind of love, that um, Grant and Lee had a bit of a rivalry. And in Grant's memoirs, Grant is referring to 
um, Sidney Johnston at Shiloh, who, of course, got shot and died leading a brigade. And Grant says, if it comes to that point, then something's really gone wrong. I'm paraphrasing. So, you know, leading a brigade into battle shows you that the Confederacy was in trouble at uh, 6.30 a.m. on on May 6th in the wilderness. I mean, you suggest it might... It possibly it's in Lee's mind that uh, he's fully aware how much trouble they're in, and if if yeah. the Confederacy's going to go down, he'd just as soon die on the field of battle rather than than survive this debacle. Uh, but of course, it doesn't end up that way. Throughout the book, uh, there's there is more coverage. I didn't count pages, and maybe it's just impressionistic, but we learn about uh, you know. General Warren and General Wadsworth, and of course William Reeves, the the substitute private, uh, and Grant himself is is a figure and Hancock. Uh, it's not that we don't hear about Lee and Longstreet, but the coverage seems uh, to lean more toward the Union side. Uh, and I don't say that as an objection personally. I enjoyed reading it that way. Did you intend to try to balance it out, or is that just an old? It, it, are we beyond having to worry about that in writing? Oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be quite honest. It, that, that was done on purpose. So okay. my, my view of this is, that, is, is this, is that oftentimes Civil War history and Civil War military history is presented as, well, you know, they were both heroic and they were both noble and both sides had had courage. and And, and it was sort of this, you know, Hey, it could have gone either way, but everyone was was doing their best sort of thing. And by the way, I think that that's true. There wasn't tremendous heroism on both sides. But I was struck by this quote by Frederick Douglass, who gave a talk at Arlington after the war. And he said, we must never forget that victory to the rebellion meant death to the republic. We must never forget that the loyal soldiers who rest beneath this sod flung themselves between the nation and the nation's destroyers. So I wanted to write about this battle from the northern perspective. What was the cost of saving the Union? And I think that that was, you know, that was obviously a, an editorial choice on my part. And mm-hmm. people may not agree with that. They want to, but I think that I think that there are plenty of very fine books that look at both sides of it. But I wanted to tell this story sort of from a northern, uh, uh, from a Union perspective. Yeah, and I, I, I think it does an excellent job of doing that. Um, uh, General Wadsworth is another character who you spend a fair amount of time mm-hmm. on, a, a political general, not a West Pointer, uh, who is also uh, killed, mortally wounded here in this battle. Uh, it, and, and again, that helps sort of portray the idea of a, a civilian uh, who has everything to live for. He's not a poor substitute like William Reeves. He's he's a, a powerful politician, and he chooses to sacrifice his life for the Republic, too. Uh, it, it, it's a powerful story. Yeah, you know, Wadsworth really was someone who I came to greatly admire. I mean, he was one of the wealthiest landowners of his day, and yet, you know, just a, so courageous that some thought he was maybe a little reckless, you know, with the risks <laughs> that he took. Um, but extremely brave, extremely highly regarded, and and um, he he was in this because he he really believed. <laughs> 
in the in the cause of the union and and um this was this was a man who was all you know ideology and and was fighting for principles um one thing I should say is you know I didn't telegraph this, but I think that a lot of people didn't notice the connection so why Warren? Why Wadsworth? And and I talk a little bit about James Rice. Well, that was the chain of command for Private William Reeves. So his mm-hmm. his brigade commander was James Rice. His division commander was uh, Wadsworth, and his um, corps commander was Warren. So that that's where that came from. Because I thought having that kind of vertical look. At, mm-hmm. at the experience in the woods, and you know, Wadsworth is um, Wadsworth is a is a great character for this because he was at all of the most important parts of the battle because he started out on the turnpike on May fifth, and then mm-hmm. on the afternoon of May fifth. Grant sends in the south to the plank road and they go bushwhacking through the woods unsuccessfully on the afternoon of May 5th. But there they are on the morning of May 6th where the main action is going to happen. So Wadsworth sort of is sort of at all of the key points, you know, coincidentally of, of, of the two days, you know, except, uh, I mean, except the- at the very end where he gets, gets shot, of course, at, on the plank yeah. road and is removed to a hospital. I would say that answers one of the the real challenges in Civil War writing, that if you're going to describe an event as as big and complex as the Battle of the Wilderness or the Overland Campaign, uh, you know, you can do as Gordon Ray has done and fill multiple volumes, and they're all fascinating. Uh, But if you want to write a compact book, as you've done here, uh, how do you – you have to have some kind of selection process and – uh, the vertical slice by looking at, at uh, as you say, a private and then his commanders up the chain of command through brigade, division, corps, uh, answers that question. And, and rather than picking randomly for different officers, there, there's a, a thread here and that it does tie together well. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, one thing I wanted to comment on is the, the title of the book, A Fire in the Wilderness. Sure. Is not just a metaphor. Uh, there is fire there, and and you talk about yeah. uh, you talk about that uh, at at some length. What that just seems just unthinkably horrifying uh, that that the the forest is on fire while they're fighting in it. Yeah, you know, as you remember what I said earlier, how, you know, as writers and as, you know, and I'm sure with your show, um, there are certain things that kind of catch our, grab our attention. And even from when I was little, um, when I was a little kid reading about the Civil War, this idea that fires were breaking out in the middle of the battle just seemed horrific to me. Um, and it really was, it was really a terrible thing. And the soldiers were frightened by it, and they, they kind of suspected that it could happen, because many of the veterans had been at uh, Chancellorsville the year before, and um, you know, if you get wounded uh, on the floor of the forest, and you can't escape, and the flames are coming at you, you know, you're, you're, you're watching that, and it's a, a really kind of an awful thing, not just to anticipate, but of course, obviously, if it happens to you. So, so I just wanted to kind of explore that, and, and it really was one of those um, horrible features of the battle. Um, and I think that, I think in the popular mind too, you know, um, there's the famous, uh, you know, Wode, um, sketch of, right. of the, 
of the um, wounded person being taken from the flames. Um, it's such a it's a it's a wonderful sketch. It really is. So yeah, I wanted I wanted to write about that, and then you know, when it, it, to to me, it, I thought it was fascinating too that some of the more literate soldiers made this connection, like you know, this is like Dante's Inferno, you know, yes. um, and with all that implies right that you know hell is a punishment but it's also something that needs to be passed through and um it really i think it really captured in in a negative way the imagination of the soldiers that were there you know there there's there's a literary sensibility throughout the book because you you quote melville you quote walt whitman mm-hmm. uh, uh you quote stephen crane uh, the 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 whole story is, is somehow bigger, uh, you know, metaphorically, uh, uh, in, in not just the sense of the inferno, but but it is a, uh, it, it's a microcosm of the the horrors of the Civil War compressed into these acres uh, of burning woodland in 1864. That makes it uh, really a powerful story. I, I will say I'm not a fan of uh, the Monday morning quarterback style of the battle writing, which you often will see mm-hmm. where people will spend a lot of time arguing, well, so-and-so should have moved here and should have done that, yeah. would have, could have, should have done this. Uh, and and that's, that is not what this book is about, clearly. That, that uh, uh, You do describe things that could have come out differently, certainly. Uh, and and I, we don't really have time uh, fitting for Burnside. We're late in the show, so we don't have time to talk about him. <laughs> uh, but he, he gets his men late to the front. Uh, but but you do have some judgments on, on the figures that you said earlier. Hancock did perhaps the the best. Um, was there anyone else who really stood out for you as you were doing this research? Well, yeah, you know, um, so this is from the sort of army's perspective. But you know, mm-hmm. the other uh, Lehman um, noted that Getty performed quite well. Who he mm-hmm. kind of he kind of uh, got to the intersection just in the nick of time uh, to secure it while they awaited uh, for the second corps to come up on, on um, the first day um, on May 5th. So, so Getty performed well, uh, Hancock, as I said, um, it's funny because, you know, General Wadsworth fought with such bravery and um, passion and he was in the thick of it, and they fought hard. Um, I don't. I don't feel qualified myself, but but I think that there were those that didn't feel that he fought well. <laughs> that, that there was that he made some mistakes, and he got he 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 more or less destroyed his division over the course of two days, um, and that wouldn't have been something that would have endeared himself to. Uh, Grant or Meade. <laughs> so, yeah, um, no, had, had so, you know, so there, there was a, um, you know, A.P. Hill is another one. He fought, he fought incredibly well on the first day, but then he made the mistake of allowing his men to um, go to sleep after the fighting in the first day and not uh, restoring his lines. And of course, they were they were caught. You know, uh, they were caught yes. disorganized and discombobulated in the morning of May six. So um, it's funny. When there, you, when well, you I would say there are a lot going... of figures, you know, for whom there are the ups and downs of this. Unfortunately, yeah. we're out of time to talk about any more of them. Oh yeah. So, readers, listeners, you're going to have to become a reader and get a copy of the book "A Fire in the Wilderness: The First Battle Between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee," which is written by our guest tonight, John Reeves. Uh, John, it is a 
pleasure again talking with you. I enjoyed the book and uh, hope it does very well. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you, too. It was great. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 